This episode of I Save That Podcast is brought to you by SecurePort IV, topical adhesive for catheter securement and site protection. SecurePort IV can help your organization reduce IV catheter failures and costs associated with IV catheter care and maintenance. Learn more at www.secureportiv.com. SecurePort IV, the small drop that's making big waves in vascular access. From the Association for Vascular Access, this is the I Save That Podcast. And you've arrived at Season 2, Episode 9 of the I Save That Podcast. This is Ramsey Nasrallah, joined by Eric Sager. This episode is made possible by support from Adhesion Biomedical, the makers of SecurePort IV, Secure Catheters, Your Complications. Hey, Ramsey. I can't believe we're on episode nine already of the season. It's really Amazing. flying by. Uh, we got a, a loaded episode coming up, though. After the break, we're going to chat with Rebecca Stevens, who is a vascular access specialist in upstate New York. And then a little bit later, uh, we have another author interview from the Vessel Health and Preservation textbook uh, with Peter Carr, all joined us all the way from Ireland to chat about his contributions to the textbook. Yeah, the, the case for the vascular access specialty and the case for vascular access teams. It's a really good conversation uh, that you, me, and uh, Renee Odenall from the Ava Foundation uh, had with them. So that'll be coming up here uh, shortly. Uh, that is specific to the Vessel Health and Preservation book, which if you haven't bought the enhanced edition from Ava, that's available on both Amazon.com and on Apple iBooks with, uh, that has the contributions that go to the foundation. If you go to avainfo.org slash VHP, like Vessel Health and Preservation, that's where you can find the links to buying either for your Kindle or for your, your iPad. And also, uh, this episode is coming out during a time where there's a favorable climate for registering for the AVA Scientific Meeting coming up in, in Las Vegas between October 4th and 7th. If you register by August 7th, you are entered into, it's kind of a Vegas theme, you could win free registration for, for the 2020 conference. So go to avainfo.org slash annual to register for the Ava Scientific Meeting at Caesars Palace prior to August 7th. It's taking place October 4th through the 7th. That's right. And it, coming up after the break, we will sit down and chat with Rebecca Stevens. So everyone, thanks for listening and please stay tuned. SecurePort IV topical adhesive is setting a new standard of care for vascular access. Never before has a single product offered two levels of securement microbial protection, and a site sealant. SecurePort IV provides securement at both the catheter hub and at the insertion site to minimize catheter movement, migration, and dislodgement. Then it seals the insertion site with a moisture-proof microbial barrier to minimize bleeding and oozing and to protect the site from contamination. SecurePort IV, the small drop that's making big waves in vascular access. For more information, visit www.secureportiv.com. And welcome back to the I Save That podcast. We have the pleasure of being joined by Rebecca Stevens, who is a vascular access specialist and nurse educator at Glens Falls Hospital, a 391-bed not-for-profit community hospital located in upstate New York. In addition to her work, at the Glens Falls Hospital. Rebecca is the president of ADVAN, and she is a nurse consultant educator for many AVA strategic partners, including Adhesion Biomedical, 
who is sponsoring this episode of the I Save That podcast. Adhesion Biomedical recently introduced the first tissue adhesive for vascular access called SecurePort IV. Hi, Rebecca. How are you doing? Hi, I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. I have Ava, Director of Clinical Education, Judy Thompson, also on the show with us, as well as Ava CEO, Ramsey Nasrallah. Welcome, welcome. I'm going to call you Becky, because that seems like it's very familiar. Since we just met, this okay. is perfect. This is perfect. Sure. Thanks so much for being on the show. I, um, I hear you're an advocate of tissue adhesive. I am. I want to start just by finding out or hearing from you what your primary exposure was with it. Yeah. So, Judy, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. I, I do love to talk about glue. And so my exposure actually came back in 2017 at AVA. There was an industry-sponsored breakfast where the Avatar group presented their work using tissue adhesive for peripheral IV securement. They compared the adhesive against various dressings and securement. Darcy Dolman was also there, and she presented her work showing tissue adhesive increase the dwell time with peripheral IVs in children. And I think, looking back, I think Dr. Pitarudi was there, and he talked about using tissue adhesive on PICs and CBCs that he inserted and had amazing outcomes. And at that time, the studies they presented were using wound closure tissue adhesive because there were not any tissue adhesives cleared by the FDA for IV catheter use until that time in September of 2017 when SecurePort IV from Adhesion Biomedical received clearance. I knew then, at that time, it was a product I needed for my patients. But after conference, returning to work and life, things get put on the back burner. <laughs> you know how that goes, Definitely. right? You see so many things. So then at AVA in 2018, I listened to a presentation by Marsha Wise. And again, Dr. Pitarudi at that time was in the audience. So people had questions just as I did. And he stood up and he answered questions about post-insertion bleeding. And he said he wasn't having, having any and that he used glue for everything. And he described himself as a glue addict. And so I knew at that time, um, I wasn't going to let it drop when I returned home. So you and I were at this same symposia that day when yeah, there, were there was a lot of people there. Yeah. And pardon the pun, but I think it's going to stick around. <laughs> That's terrible. It's just a horrible pun. But that, that was a good one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I know. I, I looked. I looked. Uh, it is definitely sticking around. And, you, you know, you're saying that there's a lot of evidence mounting. And for sure, I looked at the 2019 conference and uh, for AVA and see that Joan Weber from the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix is going to present on a study that she conducted comparing migration rates of PICs with and without tissue adhesive. So, I'm excited to hear about their results. You know, a lot of the earlier studies were done with an older version of tissue adhesive as well. So I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing what the newer um, research shows as well. So when you initially started with tissue adhesive, how did you start the process? So, so I knew I needed the product and kind of the background of that is um, my teammates and me round daily on all patients with central lines. And we perform routine and unscheduled dressing changes. But we never really knew what our rate was for unscheduled changes. So we looked at a period of three months and found it was 29%, which is a bit higher than when Ava surveyed their membership. 
And the reasons that we were changing dressings were due to bleeding at the insertion site and lack of dressing adherence. And I can tell you, we, when we insert PICS, we do not perform a skin neck. So we knew that that wasn't, you know, the issue. So after a systematic process, which involved me gathering a bunch of people together, including infection control, and presenting at value analysis, we brought SecurePort IV in and saw tremendous results. We decreased our unscheduled dressing changes related to bleeding from 40% to 4%, and the dressing non-adherence from 42% to 8%. And so what we did was we replaced BioPatch, we applied the glue at the insertion site, and then we took the glue and you know made it around the perimeter where you put the dressing on. And um, our initial uh, use of the product in, uh, also involved interventional radiology and the intensivist group in our ICU. And it was so successful, immediately IR built a charge for their outpatient procedures because they knew it was staying in the organization. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Are you using it on all devices now? Yeah, so right now we are um, using it on all of our central lines. Um, we're using it on our ultrasound IVs and occasional peripheral IV that patients, we repeatedly pull their IV out. And that's working well, as, well in addition to everything else. Are you guys considering expanding, especially knowing that the uh, PIV infections made the 2019 ECRI top 10? Well, I'd like to say that I listened to the AVA podcast with Marsha Ryder and Jim Davis from ECRI. And so if anyone in the audience hasn't listened to that, they should. Um, <laughs> Thanks for the plug. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as far as peripherals, we are using it on our midlines as well. I don't think I mentioned that. And I do expect to expand our use on peripherals. And I'm preparing to formulate a multidisciplinary work group to look at how we differ our insertion, care, and maintenance between central lines and peripheral lines. And frankly, there isn't much that's the same. And so preparing for that work group, our infection control department is pulling data from 2016, looking at bacteremia, where a peripheral IV may have been the source. I mean, we want to address the fact that peripheral IVs cause infection and not wait until it becomes a requirement to report. It's coming, it's, it's just a matter of, of when. And, you know, it. as you know, Dr. Helm's piece on accept, unacceptable peripheral IV failure, we need help beyond infections, and this could be our answer. Absolutely. So I, I applaud you for being proactive, not reactive to that. Were there any standouts or any specific situations that come to mind that this just kind of went, wow, I cannot believe it. I'm, I'm just so thankful I have this, this product. Sure. So, I mean, like you, um, I'm a pick inserter and I always try to anticipate who's going to bleed. And often there's no bleeding when I leave the room. And then I get called back after the patient's gotten out of bed and sprung a leak. <laughs> and having, you know, the last thing you want to do is take a brand new dressing, you know, insertion site. I, I like to equate it to the OR. You know, you have this beautiful sterile environment that you've created for your insertion. 
And the last thing you want to do is take that dressing off and re-expose everything to the elements. And so when we use the glue, that's not happening. The IR docs and nurses across the, the United States, I'm sure, insert 15 and a half French dialysis catheters. And we would get called back to do the dressing change just as soon as the patient hit the floor. And so that's not happening anymore. And I was just at a hospital last week where they inserted a pick on a patient with a platelet count of 1,000. And then they went back every day and checked that catheter and that insertion site was pristine. And as far oh, as other things, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Um, I mean, I'm privileged as an educator to be able to go into hospitals where they're using it on all peripherals. And some report back to me sharing, you know, heartfelt experiences. I had um, a nurse use it on a four-month-old baby that even with a short life had a history of many IV insertions. And on day six, with the glue in use, the mom said she couldn't believe the IV had lasted that long. They never do. Wow. And so that's a great feeling, you know. And I, I know we hate restarting IVs in adults, but in children, as you know, it's even more difficult. Right. And I think Darcy Dolman is going to present <laughs> some of her work at AVA as well that supports, you know, an outcome like this on this baby. You mentioned Dr. Pitarotti being a, a glue addict. and yeah. I know quite a few glue addicts out there. What about you? <laughs> well, I'm a fan, that's for sure. You know, I, um, I see the benefits. You know, I have my own experiences, and I'm fortunate, like I said, to hear from other people and see how they're using it in their organization. And it makes my day easier. It makes me more productive. It makes the patient experience better. And you said it as well. The last thing anyone wants is to lose their line due to a complication. And, you know, I even see when I go into hospitals, um, I might go in to in-service them. They're going to use it on pick insertions. And it, people see it. They see how it works. And they want it, you know, for all of their other lines. And it just has a tendency to be bigger than they originally anticipated. Well, I will tell you that I was in the ER and I was putting all my paperwork away and I sliced my knuckle with a paper cut and I grabbed my glue after I cleaned it up and healed it and went on my way. <laughs> Just a couple more questions and then I know I've taken up a lot of your time but and I've really appreciated the talk. Where do you see you going with glue from here? Okay, so um, originally when I started thinking about it and not really using it, you know, I was thinking of just on the insertion site of our central lines. But then as I started seeing how well it worked and then we started putting it around to keep the dressings down and that worked, and then I'm, you know, seeing its benefits on peripheral IVs. One of the things that I really honestly never thought about was replacing Statlock, and I saw it work. I was amazed. So I think that that will be part of our discussion when we start looking at expanding its use. There was a, some good studies out of Avatar that looked at just that, about different ways of securement and what yep. worked best. So yep. can't wait. I hope you publish once you do this. I know. I hope a lot of people publish. 
all the great work that's being done. <laughs> I know a journal that you can publish in. <laughs> really? I do. We're pretty comfy with the journal here at Ava that has to do with a lot with vascular access. So I know. And you're, from what I understand, you're very helpful with first timers getting their paper the way it should be. We are. In fact, we are actually teaching a course, a pre-conference this year for my, my nice little segue, plugging our course. But it's a pre-conference for folks that have not published before, that we're going to walk everybody through a process of doing it and hopefully going from concept to almost having a draft of it. So just um, we'll, we'll close real quick here. Becky, again, I can't thank you enough. I can't wait to um, talk to you more at conference this year. Ava, Las Vegas, you're going. I'm positive. For sure. Because you're speaking. I wouldn't mess up. <laughs> Yes, I am. Tell me yeah, about it. I, I will be uh, speaking um, at a Platinum Showcase, and I think there's going to be three of us that will be uh, talking about our youth and our results. So um, I look forward to that. Well, I will be there for sure. I'll make a point of uh, getting with you, and we'll have a good conversation. Absolutely. Well, thanks a bunch. Thank you for your Thank time. Thank you so much. And after the break, we will be joined by Renee Odenhall and Pete Carr to discuss Chapter 5 of the Vessel Health and Preservation textbook. Welcome back. We're going to continue our exploration into the enhanced edition of the Vessel Health and Preservation book, now available from Ava on Amazon.com and also on Apple iBooks. Today, we're talking to our friend Peter Carr, who works at the Health Research Board Clinical Research Facility in Galway, the National University of Ireland, Galway. He is an experienced vascular access clinician and teacher and has developed and coordinated numerous vascular access workshops and courses. Uh, Peter is a World Congress of Vascular Access Global Committee member, WACOVA, our friends, and PIC Academy Network graduate. In addition to his teaching and clinical experience, Peter is a clinical researcher specializing in reducing vascular access failure. Uh, he joins us today from Ireland. Pete, hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, Great hey, to be Pete. on this brilliant podcast. I'm sorry it took me so long uh, to join you, but I'm delighted to be on the, on the podcast uh, today. They say good, th- good things are worth waiting for, Pete. You've got me, Ramsey. Uh, you've got Eric behind the figurative glass. And today, representing the Ava Foundation, you've got Renee Odenall. Oh, good day, Renee. Hello. How are you? I'm good well, day, Peter. Thank you so much. And good day, Eric. Yeah, thanks. Peter, thanks so much for being with us today. Um, I know you were one of the authors on the training and education chapter, chapter four, and you talk a lot about the importance of competency, uh, which I think we can all agree with is incredibly important. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about differentiating how to really ensure competency between those more advanced procedures, such as central lines, pick lines, and the more common and widely accessed procedure of peripheral line access and and competency as as it relates to those two? That's a really, really good question. I guess at the outset, the the idea of competency must, I think we've written it in the chapter to ensure patient safety is maintained. And if the term vascular access, if, if that represents you know, six or seven different types of devices, then the competency measurement has to be tailored to each device. Certainly from from clinical experience, there's the you you reach a, a threshold or a saturation point where competency is obtained 
probably very quickly with less invasive devices than it would be with more invasive devices and those that come with greater risk. So it's a bit like Dr. Pepper, what's the worst that can happen kind of scenario. What's the worst that can happen with a peripheral line when you're inserting one as opposed to what's the worst that can happen with an acute central line insertion? Of course, there's similar risks in the longevity of the devices in terms of catheter-related bloodstream infections, but measuring competency when it comes to clinician performance in avoiding say the the really nasty complications in central line insertion, pneumothorax, hemothorax, air embolism, inadvertent arterial um, puncture, dilation, if it gets to that stage, are a lot, the competency tick box has to be, and the simulation that go, would, would likely go with it, which you would like to see. It's a little bit more intense. The psychomotor um, and human factors um, issues, I think, are a little bit more intense than the well-used um, peripheral intravenous uh, catheter. So I think when you're bringing this kind of competency approach to your simulation um, lab, that um, it takes account the risk that goes with each of these devices. We see that in, in clinical practice too, where you have full barrier precautions, ideally for a central line insertion, but for a peripheral line, would you have full barrier? And I guess we, when we get to the vascular access meetings and the likes of Vegas, it's a, it's a topic that comes up because infection control is, 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 is an important and eliminating any device-associated infection is such an important um, factor. Has that, has that answered the question? Has that been like a peat ramble? Has it been... I think it does. And I think, you know, you you alluded to it there, talking a little bit more about the, the more advanced procedures, obviously needing more intense um, education and, and scrutiny as far as the competency goes. You referred to it in the chapter as well, but maybe a point of clarification uh, it mentions the the Wakova recommendation about how much didactic and how much hands-on and all that stuff. That specifically, I believe, is centered around CBCs. Is that correct? That Wakova yeah. recommendation? I think okay. you're referencing Nancy's paper with Massimo Lamparti. And, you know, it's, I think yeah. they, 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 I think to surmise that paper, wasn't it the if, 50, well, like the number was 50, wasn't it? And at the end of the day, the, the synopsis was, it's not the quantity, it's the quality and the proctoring. So you could do 10 central line insertions and they might be on the most difficult 10 cases you would ever encounter in central venous axis insertion, but you have performed them too scrupulously and you have um, accounted for every, every kind of eventuality and reduced every kind of risk that you, you could. So whether, you know, and in like, the thing about peripheral Zenrene is like the number can be two, you know, and you can have you could have two witnessed insertions. You might have none, and the, the and that that probably has to change if the figure for first time insertion success is is in or around seventy seventy five percent in the, in a general kind of clinician population inserting them. Then how much competency do you need to get to to a hundred percent? And I think these, the, the people who write these simulation um, kind of approaches and, and protocols to train people in best practice and insertion outcomes need to take into account the various type of patient entities that will, will, the, the clinician will encounter. 
So rather than this kind of, oh, once you do two PIVCs, you're, you're accredited to go. And bear in mind, some hospitals don't, you don't need any accreditation. You just need a title right. and away you go. And I mean, I don't, I think in 2019, that's not good enough either. So to improve the, the, the competency will improve with the kind of the simulation blending, the whole kind of ethos that this is serious business. And then the, the protocol and the guideline for, for training is, is developed. So I, I probably think that that kind of paper could probably be revisited again. And the interesting thing about, I guess, looking at it from a researcher lens is that you could measure that. You could like, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be interesting to see is the uptake incompetently quicker in this vascular access specialist clinician versus a generalist, you know, huh. who may have yeah. multiple competing educational requirements, whereas the vascular access specialist might be just so focused and so in on this that their uptake, their their turnaround in competency is a lot quicker. Um, mm-hmm. And the only way we'll know that is if we collect decent data on that kind of um, initiative or approach. So I think competency is going to be here to stay. And you would like to think that the clinician that's inserting the device in any patient is is extremely competent in that procedure. You articulate the, the, the case for the specialist, and you also talked about the generalist and all the different competing competencies that, that they have uh, at the bedside. Throughout yeah. the, the care and maintenance continuum, whether they're in the in the acute care facility with the patient still, or if, once the patient's been discharged and they're living with that device, let me ask you then, as a as an expert in in the right education for for vascular access education for teams, what is the level of competency that a generalist should have? Like, is there is that measurable, or what would, in your expert opinion, someone who is not a vascular access specialist, what grade should they be at? I don't even know how to measure it, but uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, like. I think in this day and age, it's it the the measurement stuff is so easy. I mean, I cycled to work this morning and it was measuring how fast I was going on the bike, and yeah, <laughs> then then your friend, you know, send you how fast they are on their bike, and then you go, God, we're like we we get so far in certain informatics, and then we we get stopped with the stuff that's probably more necessary. Like it's not really important how fast I went on my bike or how many calories I burned and so on and so forth. Juxtapose that with, is it important for PCAR how many safe central lines he's inserted? And if he ever had a complication, could he reflect on it with this data and augment his practice? Like, do I need a, a trip down to um, the simulation suite if if your hospital is lucky enough to have one of those? And indeed, lucky enough to have one of those that's, um, an academic affiliated simulation suite. One one person referred to me once. He said, every Monday morning I come in, I practice on a phantom with ultrasound and a needle. And that's never left me. So like, it's wow. it's almost like, you know, when you see the, the soccer players warming up and, you know, the footballers, like that kind of thing, that's just... You know, I dare say it, I don't see a generalist doing that. Like, you know, can you imagine the effing and blinding that would go on if you go, what's your man doing in there? Oh, he's warming up for the central line. And so, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like, <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, I know. And the rest, like, if you were to ask 
a busy clinician, medical clinician, for example, what you know, do you, do you see yourself doing central lines all the time in your life? Do you see yourself doing peripherally inserted central catheters for the rest of your career or PIVCs? And like and, and then give them a choice. Oh, you can go to Vegas to a scientific meeting, or you can go to Brussels for um, an intensive care meeting. Which one are they going to pick? And that's probably the you know where we fall between two stools, if you like. We we think that the space is is very unique and very very specialised in the same way podiatry is, in the same way speech and language therapy is, um, and in the same way a, a surgical intervention is like orthopedics looking after bones. We just look after veins and arteries, um, but pr- primarily veins. And you t- to try and barter that in in this modern healthcare um, arena where there's so much money going around so many vested interests it's definitely an interesting space to be in you you would like to think that we get closer to having decent data that says yeah gee whiz this approach really works we don't even need you know we don't need to get on to maybe claire or um you know the uh, claire rickard the really good interventional um researchers to do this you know we can we can extrapolate that you know doing doing a randomized control trial and this is probably a waste of money we can see that if we get this cohort of people doing it correctly all the time, that we, we're seeing the data trends in, in infections falling, we're seeing the bread and butter stuff of vascular access falling, like repeat insertion attempts fall, uh, pre, you know, post-insertion failures falling, because you've got this cohort of people who are looking at their data and augmenting their practice. I have often said, oftentimes on, on stages with a lot of people at, at AVA conferences, that every clinician is a vascular access clinician. It doesn't necessarily mean, and you had referred to titles earlier, that they are on the vascular access team. So you will have, uh, we, we'll call them vascular access enthusiasts, uh, Renee, yeah. Renee, Renee among us. Uh, if someone is, say, board certi- certified in, in the vascular access specialty, but works in telemetry or, or in some other unit and isn't part of that, of that roving team, uh, what role, and we're talking about the right education for peripheral IV success, for central line success, what role does that that specialist have? Because AVA's got thousands of members. They're not all on vascular access teams. It's a multidisciplinary organization. I need to speak both to vessel health and preservation, but then also to just the diversity of the people that uh, love and, and, and come to AVA and, and work locally to advance the vascular access specialty within their own communities and hospitals. Because if we start to, to create a if we build a wall between the vascular access team uh, yeah. and, and the rest of the, the hospital, I, I, I have to wonder if that's going to help us advance the specialty yeah. to the level of, a, of importance and vigilance that it deserves in healthcare. Yeah, that, Ramsey, that's like spot on analysis of my answer. People get it. If you get part on the podcast that like there's this kind of silo group knocking around, the idea is like, if no, not everyone on the team can be Tom Brady. Not everyone can play quarterback. In the same way, in various sports around the world, you've people on the team in dis- different positions. And in 2016, I presented at Ava. Like the whole idea is that you know you have someone who you have the, you have the Michelle DeVries on the team who's like so d- data conscious about infection. It's incredible. Whereas you have someone then like Vinay Chopra who's so pick conscious that they're on that team. 
But then you've also got the the people who the data is coming back to you telling you these are really hot at first time insertion success. Like if you if you if you put five people up on the wall and you said pick the person out who you want to have that device placed in your patient and and they and you've got the data coming back to you and it says that this person's first time insertion success rate and complication rate is a really 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 high and good mm-hmm. you're going to put them every day of the week in the same way that you know there's some things in vascular access that I'm really good at there's some things that I really need to learn more of um, and do I have time to learn more about that? Then you barter that off in your in your kind of in your workflow. A- absolutely, an advocate of um, a team in this. And in my experience, the teams that work are the teams that that really get it and they get their role. And you know, I do think that you would you would absolutely collapse. You would absolutely burn out if you're going to try and do all this stuff. Um, yourself as the specialist. I, w- I want to ask you about a line in here. Um, I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, the end of the, the right education for PIV success, and you're absolutely right. You had cheekily mentioned that we might mention peripheral cannulas at AVA in Las Vegas. I think I think that's a good guess. We probably will. Uh, this yeah. is I'm, re- I'm reading specifically from from section four point four in the Vessel Health and Preservation Book. Given that documentation uh, documentation of uh, PIVCs is often not perceived. As a clinical concern, I'm going to I'm going to bold that often not perceived as a clinical concern, and you've cited it. Uh, when outcomes are poorly recorded in the medical chart or, or chart or computer record, greater emphasis is required to stress the usefulness of vascular access data recording. Uh, such a concept, when underpinned by vessel health and preservation, could revolutionize the decision making for the vascular access science. In addition to contributing to con- continuous data cycle, etc. Uh, I have to ask you. That looks great on paper, and and we've been talking about the overlooked risk of peripheral IV uh, complications for, for years. And, and, and this is all very well known and understood amongst the Peter Cars of the world. Uh, mm. The, I mean, I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a negative way, the intelligentsia within vascular access who've been screaming about this for a long time. Also in epidemiology, our friends across the, the disciplines. How, you know, you talk about the right education for peripheral IV success. How do you get this put into practice in the hospital? I mean, you can say we have, we have data, we can talk about numbers, uh, we can talk metaphorically about if you if you put the locks on the front door of the house, you can still break in the side window. Mm-hmm. What is how do you make the case to effectively get non-clinical stakeholders or generalist stakeholders, administrative stakeholders to buy into that this is a concern, a plan needs to be put into action. Vessel health and preservation should rep- should should involve every vessel and every device that's that's entering a vessel. What do you do in a hospital to get people to, to act with this level of vigilance and, uh, and data recording? What you do is you have, you have to, your leadership is so important in it. Like the, 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 the book stops generally with the, the CEO, the head um, man or woman in charge. Um, and they're, you know, understudies, they have a significant role to play in it. But when you when you move it back to the clinical cold face, like you've got a very busy clinician, let's say in the emergency department, and the, and like this is just one facet of healthcare that we're you know you're we're suggesting that data capture capture has to happen. Like what about all the other 
pieces of information that we're supposed to collect. If you look at the, the, the nursing, which we'll say nursing is predominantly the, the, the workforce or profession that look that are in charge with the care and maintenance, like they have care and maintenance to do on wound care, stoma, fluid balances, cardiovascular, you know, systems approaches, all these other, you know, half a dozen to a dozen systems. And then all these other additional QIs that come on, you know, quality initiatives that say, oh, we need to have this form filled in. Like the people are incredibly time poor. And then they're, they're getting, the risk then is that, um, you know, patient safety suffers. Like when's the last time, you know, if there's any nurses listening to this podcast that you've actually sat down beside your patient and, and had a chat with them? as opposed to filling in reams and reams of paper. So the first observation is it's going to be incredibly difficult. You're, you're, going to, you're going to have to try and, you know, get stakeholders involved and convince them that this data is incredibly important. But then you're going to have to kind of simulate that data collection in the real world and how feasible is it like some of the some of the data collection we have for our clinical studies is huge, but if you if you were to expect that to be collected in in a normal day's work, we're we're probably we're fooling ourselves if we think that's going to be um, an achievable goal. So I think data collection capture that's feasible that isn't um, you know a big kind of effort on the clinician's part. And this is where the, you know, the good people that, that attend AVA, the industry, the innovators that come there, they come up with th this idea like, oh, so this is your problem. This is the problem we have. We're not getting enough data in, good data in quick enough to convince the hospital that we need to invest in this strategy with vascular access or this simulation part of vascular access or this team approach with vascular access. So these kind of people will come up with concepts and they go, oh, yeah, maybe we should start. Can, can, like, for example, scanning was one that we were trying to um, pursue. The, the ultrasound machines that we use are incredibly useful for data capture. Um, and if that can be, if th those kind of, if the information can be, you know, directed towards, you know, the, this ultimate database, then that's probably going to be, um a better, more pragmatic, achievable goal than um, forcing loads of people to enter either paper data or fill in this new sheet. You know, presenting your data and saying, look, this is what we had. This was our baseline. This is what we were like. And this was the intervention that we did. This was the quality initiative that we did. I right. think that's a powerful way, Ramsey, of um, convincing stakeholders that, you know, we need to change, practice needs to change. I hope that's a good question. Yeah, prove it to yourself. Use, use, use enough of the, the clues and the hints and the evidence that's been published by others. And so yeah. we, can, we can prove that here. Peter, one more question before we let you go. Um, along the lines of making a case for vascular access teams, you mentioned in the chapter insertion and maintenance, and that being in control of the vascular access specialist or vascular access team. I don't think anyone could argue with the insertion portion of it. The maintenance portion of it is a harder argument. Um, how does one kind of wrap their head around 
having all of the maintenance um, observation portions of vascular access underneath a vascular access team as, a, as opposed to the generalist. And the reason I say that is a lot of the argument comes back with if you take that away from the bedside nurse or clinician, we really start looking at the possibility of complications due to inattention or disregard of the vascular devices by the bedside nurse. Another observation that will be will, would be likely to be identified if you were to study it, and you you have to you have to clinically interpret that data and that scenario um, with the risk. You you may <clears throat> in in one scenario have the generalist coming into the vascular access team and then in three months time heading back into the generalist world with all this rich information wouldn't that be a great process so you could you you take these people and you basically brainwash them with the vessel health and preservation and vascular access science and the the ava mantras and the avas mantras and the nevas mantras and so on and so forth and then they go back to the ward and go wow that was just such an incredible experience working with the vascular access team I'm now affiliated with them, but I need to go back and maintain my generalist skills on the ward. But now, now I know that um, our patients are going, their central line is going to be better dressed because we know that the clinicians are using a particular approach and we know that we're using this kind of technology and the data say is telling us all this as well. And patients are, um, patients are getting better and getting less complications. I think that's the, um, that's the way I'd frame that. That's the way I'd be um, convincing people that all isn't lost. Join the team, and then you can get back. Yeah. You can back back on the ward, you know, or back. Yeah. So I think I, I took I took two things from that, Peter. One is let's not assume right that the yeah. that the generalist is going to lose sight of the vascular yeah. device. That's we need to study it. And the other thing I took away from that is Ava twenty twenty goal brainwashing. <laughs> oh, yeah like obey <laughs> yeah this this yeah i mean it can, brainwashing can work like it's going to impact positively on patients you know um you know that's 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 always a kind of a potential good thing but um it probably probably has its faults too i suppose like everything else yeah Th- those are good takeaways uh, uh renee i got them as, as well to give some direction uh, for, for our <laughs> listeners, if uh, to, to obey and to, to follow Vessel Health and Preservation and to, to get the enhanced edition of the, the AVA, the AVA enhanced edition of the Vessel Health and Preservation book that was authored by uh, dozens of subject matter experts, including Peter Carp, who you just heard, uh, you can go to avainfo.org slash VHP. You can buy it on either Amazon or Apple for $9.99. That's USD, Pete. Uh, you can also attend the AVA scientific meeting uh, this October in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace. That is October 4th through the 7th, and you can learn more about that at avainfo.org slash annual. Come uh, spend time with us in Las Vegas, uh, learn more about uh, Vessel Health Preservation Vascular Access, meet Peter Carr, and uh, thank you for your time today, Pete. Uh, listen, guys, it, your work is incredible, and to be given an opportunity to you know, work with, work with Nancy and all the great um, co-authors on this chapter is is incredible and then for the you know very very grateful for this podcast and the work um that the ava foundation do like the the week that is in it over in in the states um, i mean ireland is well in tune with the the anniversary of the moon landing like and to, to paraphrase 
you know, what this book probably is, is a small step for the vascular access um, gurus in our space, but, I, but, but quite possibly a giant leap for vessel health and preservation for, you know, the people that we're, you know, that, that, that are our inspiration. And, um, you know, it's great to be a part of it. And I'm looking forward to meeting up with um, all the good people of Ava in Vegas. And thanks so much again. Awesome. Thank you, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Thank you. It's Eric again, here to talk about upcoming AVA Network events. DMV Van hosts 2018 Herbst Award winner Dr. Jack Ledun for a chat about the selection of vascular access devices on Sunday, July 28th at 1 p.m. in Bethesda, Maryland. Existing DMV Van members get in free of charge, thanks to Eloquest for sponsoring this event. When the calendar flips to August, Z-Van's dinner meeting on the 13th is in Fresno, California. Join Connie Giorgenti for her presentation on reducing venous depletion with the Seldinger technique extended well PIV. This event is sponsored by Vigon and is free for existing C-Van members. Next up is the 11th Annual Flavan Vascular Access Summit on Saturday, August 17th. Presentations from Vascular Access key opinion leaders like Melody Bullock, Chris Hunter, Matt Ostroff, Amy Gregory, and Jack Ingold line the agenda, which also includes a continental breakfast and buffet lunch. Five CE credits are available for nurses at the event which starts at 7.30 a.m. at the Renaissance Resort World Golf Village in St. Augustine, Florida. Register at the Flavan website. Polar Van's first annual symposium is scheduled for Friday, August 23rd at the Alaska Native Medical Center in Anchorage, Alaska. This full-day educational seminar starts at 8 a.m. and is sponsored by BD Adhesion and Teleflex, and it features guest speakers Nadine Nakazawa, Russ Nassoff, and Tim Spencer. And to round out the month, IndyVan hosts five educational presentations and a grand round discussion as part of its 2019 full-day scientific meeting vendor fair on Thursday, August 29th. Be sure to check out avainforg slash calendar to stay up to date on all local network meetings happening in your area. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We want to extend a special thanks to all interviewees of this podcast. That includes Rebecca Stevens, Peter Carr, as well as Renee Odenhall from the AVA Foundation for joining us for that conversation. And as always, thanks to Dabney Coleman. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the Fair Use Doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.